action. Welcome to Torn Stubs with me, photographer Robert Gershenson, and Josh Winning, the greatest film critic you've never heard of. And we're going to the movies. To celebrate the release of Joshua's brand new book, The Shadow Glass, we have been running down the best 80s sci-fi and fantasy movies and getting an insight into Joshua's creative juices. <laughs> <laughs> And this is our final episode in the series. And for this episode, we have watched The Never-Ending Story, directed by Wolfgang Peterson. Joshua. Bullied 10-year-old Bastian, played by Barrett Oliver, is a dreamer whose father tells him he needs to keep his head out of the clouds and his feet on the ground. When he discovers an old book called The Never-Ending Story, Bastian hides in the school attic to read it, and discovers the story of warrior Atreyu, played by Noah Hathaway, who is on a quest to save the world of Fantasia from the terrifying nothing. But whose story is this really? And what if Atreyu fails? The nothing. Robert, you've been singing the theme tune ever since we got on the uh, recording. <laughs> <laughs> you obviously love it so much. <laughs> i tell you what, I haven't seen this film in 30 years. Whoa! 30 years. It used to be, I don't know if they had it at your school, but on the last day of term, just before we broke up for summer, the final day would literally be a fun day. Like, we could watch videos, yeah. we can play board games, do whatever the fuck we like. School's out. And it was always, for a number of years in a row, it was always, let's watch Never Ending Story. And I was wow. just like, one year I was just like, fuck that. So I thought, <laughs> right, I'm going to take in my copy of Hook and demand that we watch that. So we did. That, <laughs> so the last time I saw this oh, was when you refused. About, must have been like 91, 92. Oh my God. So it's been 30 okay. years since I saw it. But a lot of it was fresh in my mind. So did you still remember what, what was going to happen next kind of thing? Um, I don't think the nuances of like the meta nature of the story registered with me as a child. Because no. that was a surprise. I didn't realise that it was, you know, there was a, a whole meta layer going on. Mm -hmm. um, I just remember almost feeling a pressure as a kid to cry when the horse dies. Yeah. Why aren't you crying? Everyone... Why aren't you crying? The horse is drowning in its own sadness. Why won't you cry? <laughs> it's, the, it's the death that, you know, ruined that a keeps on giving. childhoods or something. <laughs> it's the death that keeps on giving. <laughs> people are still not okay with that i i watched it um last week as part of a watch along twitter thing that i've been doing and there were a couple of people who dm'd me to say that they um are really excited about shadow glass and you know the the watch along series that i'm doing but they can't watch never-ending story <laughs> because they get too upset about our tax or they're not over our tax even though it's been 30 years but it is it is really it is upsetting and it's i think a lot of it comes down to the fact that the horse you know horses their facial expression doesn't change whether they're happy or sad you know when, <laughs> yeah. you've never seen a horse smile have you you've never seen a horse cry oh i have but 
our emotion gets put onto the blank canvas, the Mona Lisa face of the horse. So whatever <laughs> we're feeling, we project onto the horse. And it yeah. is upsetting. And the fact that that kid who plays the, the, the quest kid, I don't know what his name is. Atreyu. Atreyu. That's a, that is a, a, a brilliant performance. And that kid yeah. completely sells the desperation of this kid is losing his best friend. Yeah, and it's, it's a testament to the kids' performance because they don't really set up any... They no. don't spend any time to establish an emotional connection between him and the horse. It's just literally, mm-hmm. he rides it in one scene, then they go into the, the, the swamp of sadness or whatever it is, and then the horse fucking drowns. Yeah, it's really quick. So it's, it's him. He sells the scene. And obviously yeah. the visual of a horse drowning. Yeah, there's that as well. And you know what? The biggest delay on production was training the horse to not freak out when it was being lowered down into the water. Because yeah, as I you mean, said, horses don't want to be in a swamp of sadness. I don't... So it took like seven weeks or something to train these two horses to do it, I think. I don't like it when animals are used like that in films. Well, I know. Because I just it's... think the animal doesn't know what's going on. The animal must be terrified. But do you want to hear a nice end to the story? what the horse didn't drown the horse didn't drown and actually it went on to live for 20 years with uh the stunt double with trauma (laughs) (laughs) yeah never went near water ever again you can lead a horse to water but you can't make it drown you can't make it drown (laughs) (laughs) but this film is obviously very important to you isn't it this film yeah i absolutely adored it as a kid um and it's one that I have had, you know, I've had on video, then I had it on DVD. I now have it on Blu-ray. Um, and it's just one that's always been in my life. And I feel like it kind of, it definitely takes on fresh significance sort of every couple of years when I watch it. Um, and actually it's become one of the, it's become like a weird ritual, a nice ritual, where I now watch it pretty much every time I see my other half's mum, because she had never seen it before. Oh, I thought you said she. I thought you were going to say she was a drowned horse. (laughs) No, she will be listening to this, by the (laughs) way. Because I think I played her the the theme tune one night, and she had no idea what the hell I was going on about. So we watched it together. She loved it, and now whenever I see her, we watch it together. And um, I just, I love doing that. I love watching films that I know so well and love with people who've never seen it before and you can kind of watch vicariously through them because you get that thrill of the new through them watching it yeah um and she and kind of i actually appreciate it in a different way watching it with her because the 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 lines that the scenes that kind of upset her are not i mean yes the horse but not necessarily the horse it's the moment when um the childlike empress says uh, he simply can't believe that one little boy could be so important. And it's such a, it's such a lovely sentiment that I think is almost the philosophy of the film, actually. And my partner's mum cries every time that line comes up. And actually, it kind of makes me well up a little bit now as well, because it's just lovely. It's sort of like, yeah, this boy who's been bullied mercilessly, his mum is dead. His dad is this fucking absolute um, absent father. And he doesn't believe that he actually is important. He kind of almost believes the opposite, actually. Is that what you latched onto at one point in your life? I really wish I could say. I think that 
there was definitely uh as a as a kid that moment when Atreyu turns up and I was like oh hang on a minute I don't like I don't like the females anymore <laughs> you know I think he was my first crush as a kid so there was probably oh, no, a little I mean, bit of that I mean, going there on there might be that but I was thinking the fact that Bastian's mum died your mum died Bastian's dad yeah, but she... was a bit distant your dad wasn't necessarily distant but hmm. I guess there's parallels to be drawn there. Hmm. Well, my mum didn't die or didn't die until I was 21. Um, oh, lucky me. Off. So yeah, I know. <laughs> so, uh, I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't quite like Bastion. <laughs> no, I don't really know. I think I just love the story. I love the journey. I love the spectacle of it. I love the creatures. I thought it was beautiful. I thought the music was amazing. You know, the characters, I think it was just one of those stories that just spoke to me on a level that I couldn't necessarily articulate as a kid. It, it, and even now, I just think it's probably one of the most emotional um, types of this film that are out there. You know, like we can, Labyrinth has a, a sentiment and emotion to it as well. But a lot of the stories, that, a lot of the films that we've watched this season they haven't really had the same level of like emotional intelligence i think that never ending story does and i think that's why people love stories is because it makes them feel something have you ever read the book this is obviously based on a a 5 or 600 page book by michael ende no i never felt the need to i f- i feel like this film is the perfect distillation of the story that i love so much and i've think that reading the book would offer a different experience and i don't necessarily need that yet Mm. yeah and i know that michael ende hates the film or hated the film he's passed on now but he hated the film so much i think he sued them (laughs) really because they changed his name taken off yeah he he had his name taken off so it wasn't based on the book by michael ende i think it was just maybe they didn't have that as a credit at all maybe they're just in admitting the credits that it was based on anything yeah i think that he was kind of upset about the fact that the film basically only tells the first half of the story of the book yeah um and the way that wolfgang peterson tells it he did sort of go and and meet with michael ende and they did work on a script together and they tried to break it together but Peterson said with, you know, the utmost respect, Michael Ende doesn't understand how to make a movie, how yeah. to distill that enormous rich world and storyline into a 90 minute film that kids are able to sit through. And Wolfgang Peterson so is a tough. brilliant filmmaker. Let's just let's just look at his CV, like a, a quick glance. Yeah. Das Boot in 1981. And I've I watched the four hour version and it flies by. It's such a tense tense film mm. all set in a submarine basically apart from the opening and yeah. the closing uh, then you've got In the Line of Fire which is a brilliant 90s thriller you've got Outbreak mm. which everyone's been watching over the past oh two my years. god yeah Air Force One Outbreak. which is that was a moment in my childhood yeah Air Force One which is just one of the best uh, Harrison Ford thrillers The Perfect Storm Troy The Poseidon Adventure like the new one Poseidon oh the remake yeah the yeah. remake he's just a brilliant brilliant filmmaker very economical understand mm. he understands the assignment <laughs> yeah he gets it yeah and Is he's it... never done a film like this again really he's 
he's known for sort of hard but entertaining thrillers, I guess. And then this sort of sticks out as a, as a very beautiful sore thumb of, of strangeness. It's dark, though. Oh, God, yeah. It's really dark. And, you know, it poses some interesting questions. Like, is it fair for the entire responsibility of Fantasia's survival to be placed upon the shoulders of a child? Why should Bastion mm. be responsible for a environment or a world that he knows nothing about. Why is he the one that's got to save it? Yeah. Well, that's kind of assuming that there is there is the room for failure. And I think the lovely thing about the film is that it knows he can't fail. It's like that line that I love from Sabrina the Teenage Witch that I always bring up about how at love, at 16, it's always love. You know, she goes through those love trials to prove that, to stop her, to stop Harvey turning into a frog or something. And she wins because, of course, when you're 16, it's always true love. And I think there's a similar thing happening here where whatever force is behind this world knows that kids are powerful in their own way and Bastion actually can't lose. Why can't Bastion lose? Explain that to me. Well, don't really know. <laughs> I think like, <laughs> Pete, Peterson, no, Peterson says this movie is all about the power of kids and empowering kids. And it's saying, go and change the world. You are important. And I think that perhaps you could read the story and the threat that the world is, this Fantasia is experiencing as, as kind of like an invitation for Bastion to discover his own strength. And there isn't necessarily a way for him to fail. You know, it's not going to let that happen. I, I definitely get the idea that it's about empowerment and finding strength in oneself and um, sort of um, finding the confidence to sort of make a change, whether that's fight against the bullies or save Fantasia. But why mm. does it have to be on this one boy's shoulders? That's a lot of responsibility. And I think he's too young for that because at the end we see that he actually abuses the power that he's been trusted <laughs> with. And you said in the last episode, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Because yeah. instead of wishing his mum back to life, he just uses the big flying dog carpet to terrorise <laughs> three boys. Yeah. That's because he's a kid. But that's the thing. You can't yeah. give kids that amount of power and responsibility because they don't know how to use it. And he doesn't have a responsible adult in his life his teachers <laughs> his teachers are obviously not noticing that he's he's grieving and his dad is just like well your mum's dead get over it you dickhead yeah eat your waffle no more dreaming he's yeah. a he's an egg and egg and orange juice shake for you to put hair that was chest. that was fucking disgusting what Ugh. i didn't get that i and didn't get stuck get, in his mustache as well it's so gross that was horrible i once years ago um someone told me like a, a recipe for a homemade protein shake so you get like uh -huh. some oats and um milk and peanut butter and an egg and you whisk it all up so i did that home took it to the gym which is in central london so it's in my bag on the tube oh, and it's hot then it was in my locker hot and then after the gym i'm drinking it as i'm walking up oxford street and i'm like i can't i just can't oh. i can't drink this not only is it gloopy I'm sure you're supposed to drink warm, it fresh. Well, that's the thing, right? Not only is it gloopy and warm, I'm also thinking, there's raw egg in here. I'm not Rocky Balboa. So I've been there. Yeah, exactly. I didn't even just bin the, 
the protein shake, I binned the container. I had to buy a new container. <laughs> like, it's contaminated. So what is the what's right. the nutritional value of having 500 calories of orange juice and an egg? Yeah. It's not, it like, this 80s, guy's a bod- it's not like this guy's a bodybuilder. He's clearly just some sort of like middle management solicitor or, or accountant. Or maybe that was like the one meal he actually got to have until nighttime. So he was sort of powering up for the day. Absolutely disgusting. He was going to go hit the golf course, probably. Who is reading the story of Bastian reading the story of the never-ending story? <laughs> well, we're watching it, that's for sure. Yeah, we're watching it. But, I, I mean, we're not, we're not acknowledged in the film. It's not like the characters turn yes, to are. us. No, we are not. Yes, we are. When? We're completely acknowledged. It's when the childlike empress at the end says they were with him when he went into the bookshop or something and they were there when something or other happened and blah, blah, blah. You know, she totally acknowledges that we are part of the story. No, that wasn't, that didn't register with me. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to have to watch it more than once every 30 years, Rob. (laughs) I love that moment when the childlike empress turns to camera and looks at you and is beseeching Bastion to, to do something. I found that moment for me is like full hair raising on backs of arms moment where it's just brilliant. It's so audacious. That whole sequence when Atreyu meets her and they have the, the talk that sort of suddenly, suddenly makes explicit that Bastion is part of the story. Atreyu is kind of like an avatar for Bastion. And also we are there watching it as well. We are experiencing this story through Bastion in like a triple whammy kind of way. I just love that it does that. It doesn't ever stop and say, eh, I'm not sure kids are going to understand this. It doesn't matter if they don't understand it. They'll get the emotion of it. They'll understand the emotion of that situation. Okay, so here's another question. Who yeah. is the bookseller? Yeah, I know. He's almost like a like a little mischievous sort of like gnome or something. <laughs> like he's dropped it there fully knowing that Bastion needs that story. How long has he been waiting for Bastion to visit? Yeah. Who knows? And is he from Fantasia himself? How did he know it was Bastion that was going to come into the room, come into the shop? I mean, you're assuming that this has only happened once. But if you look at the... So think of the scene where... Atreyu discovers all of the paintings in the ruins that show the entire story happening. That actually reminded me of The Omen 2, when they find all those tableaus and it tells you everything that's happened in the previous two films. Yeah, I I knew there was something familiar about that. Um, But that almost kind of implies that this story has happened before Mm. and it will happen again. That's why it's a never-ending story. You know, the title isn't a lie. It's actually saying something deeper than this isn't. This is a um, a finite thing that you're watching. So that guy in the shop, he could have fifty copies of that book. He could be sitting there every single day waiting for people to come in who need that book. And it's not necessarily always children. And if it's if it's somebody else, if it's a grown-up, if it's a grown woman. Maybe the characters that she sees, there's, there is no childlike empress. There's, uh, you know, whoever she identifies as admirable or worthy of adoration. And maybe Atreya is a woman or, you know, whoever the reader identifies with. So it, there's a multiverse. 
all back yeah. in for the same thing. Essentially, I think that's kind of what's being implied. Like Bastion reads the story, but maybe somebody else will read it again in the future and the story will happen all over again. And it's a story about discovering your your inner worth, no matter who you are, even, inverted commas, if you're a child. I guess another question that sort of ties into this would be, does Bastion have to keep reading the book and inventing more stories in order for the in order for the characters to live so once bastian gets too old he has to pass it on so was the bookseller has he has he been sort of trapped in that i guess it would become a bit of a curse where you have to keep reading (laughs) and inventing these stories and that's why he's surrounded by other books and dust and you know he lives in that bookshop so is there is has he spent last 40 years doing the same thing or 60 70 years doing the same thing that he now has to pass on to bastian for bastian to go do yeah maybe maybe it's like a uh, let the right one in style passing on the passing on the heavy burden yeah possibly oh, yeah. i could see that but but yeah. also it's also the doesn't the childlike empress say something like fantasia is kept alive by all of the stories that we create so it's a bit like Toontown in some ways, maybe. I don't really know what the rules are for Toontown, but it's Fantasia is almost like the place where every single story that anybody creates anywhere in the world ever manifests. So we've only seen a fraction of Fantasia, but there could be a corner of Fantasia that is full of Jedi and another corner full of dinosaurs. A bit like Ready like Player Ready One. Ready Player maybe. One. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. That would be That would be a really... Horrible, horrible. <laughs> that would just be horrible. Very different film. Why? Why would renaming the Empress Child save Fantasia? That I didn't pick up on why that was a thing. Mm. Well, I think there's lots of things going on there, but it's sort of implied that Bastian names chooses his mother's name for her, and on sort of like a philosophical level, Moon you could Child! say that. Mary child <laughs> which makes me think his mum was a hippie or like it's a very strange name yeah unless moon just is her first name or maybe it's pronounced differently maybe it's an irish name and her name is actually jeff <laughs> maybe but you know maybe the fact that he chooses that name that name has power for him that name yeah. he sort of represents somebody who we assume Loved him, did want him to dream, didn't necessarily want him to keep his feet on the ground. You know, the the name Moonchild heavily suggests that she did want him to be a massive dreamer. And the dad is the one who was like, oh, for God's sake. Um, (laughs) I just got rid of that. I just got rid of the dreaming woman. Now my child is dreaming. (laughs) I'll eat my egg. I'll eat my bloody egg and OJ. (laughs) But so I also think there's like a really interesting commentary on identity. Because clearly names are important you know we when when you're naming a child parents just don't pluck a name out of the air they make a decision about what what that name means to them and what they envision that name representing for that child as they grow up um and so there's that and i also think there's you could link that up with people who change their name for whatever reason you know people who decide to change their last name because they don't like their family name for whatever reason 
clearly there's a trans reading there where claiming your own true identity discarding the the identity that was given to you um i think there's so much power in a name the only trouble i have with childlike empress and this is something i actually hadn't thought of and full credit to milena who is part of the shadow glass guild on twitter i asked a question on twitter which was what name would you give the childlike empress and she said well I would like her to name herself because that gives her her own power. And I think that's oh. really interesting because the idea of an empress being a child back in the 80s and a, and a girl, a female child, was, is kind of like, oh, that's so empowering and amazing. And yes, it is, but it's almost become a trope now. And so the power of a girl being an empress isn't as as sort of like potent now i think so there would be another way for her to prove her power and the name no that she would choose film. is empress mcchildface <laughs> banana hammock childlike <laughs> <laughs> phalange empress childface does the yeah. technology what do you think used... why why do you think that he has to name her why do you think that saves fantasia is there a is there a reading that when you kind of rename something, it's almost like it's being reborn, it's being reinvigorated? Mm. You know, companies rename themselves because they want to wash away any bad notations or, or connotations um, from their previous um, sort of wrongdoings, I guess, or people want to get a fresh start. So. Mm. Is there a sort of a... Oh, like um, a certain social media platform that has completely rebranded itself recently. That no one ever uses the word meta. But, <laughs> yeah. but is there like a um, a biblical reading here? You know, you, you're washing away the, the nothing. The nothing is washing away everything like a flood, getting rid of all mm. the evil. And what we're left with has no resemblance to what was so suffocating and overwhelming about the evilness from before. So it needs a new name. And if the Empress yeah. represents the good of Fantasia, then she needs a new name and maybe Fantasia needs a new name. Mm. Fantastica. Fantastico. Does the technology used almost suffocate the film? I think that it's a film that on a sort of a on a sort of technological level has aged, clearly. You know, Fal the Falcor puppet is impressive you know you couldn't make that in your back garden kind of thing it mm. does look great but at the same time it does look old um but i think that generally a lot of the um puppet work a lot of the sort of map paintings i think it really holds up brilliantly like if you look at mauler that massive turtle that is sensational that is that properly yeah. gobsmacking even now i see that every morning in the mirror <laughs> no wonder bastion <laughs> screams his head off um Bloody i think hell. i the the 80s is an interesting one and what's been really clear as we've been doing these these films over the, over this series is that the 80s was such a brilliant period for technological advancement and you can look at it from the brilliant technology used for the original star wars all the way through the 80s and up until Jurassic Park, that's such mm. a brilliant 15, 16-year period of 
technological advancements that we are still feeling the benefits of today without that yeah. that 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 15 year period we don't get avengers endgame we don't get spider-man we don't get all the cool we don't get dune right mm -hmm. and i think sometimes in these 80s films the story is sort of pushed to the side a little bit because they want to play with their new toys <laughs> and uh, you show know, us the money for some films like um roger rabbit they find a really good balance for other films like dark crystal maybe they don't and i think In this Europe, one yeah. has a little too it's leaning a little bit towards the story is a little underdeveloped hmm. i feel that there is such a large rich story and backstory and world here that it's not it's not given as much foreground as the technology which is why i think a remake or a sequel series or a remake and then sequel series would actually be quite welcome and it would be a tv series because clearly a 500 page book down into a 140 minute film something's going to get lost there yeah so would you want a remake and sequel series i wouldn't want a remake and that's probably never going to happen because the rights are tied up in all kind of legal you know stuff they can always um, be untied we know that <laughs> well i don't know it's, it's all up to the nd estate i guess because he passed away in 95, I think. Give him enough um, money and he'll sign. Obviously, Peterson says we don't need a remake. But I I wouldn't say no to a, a like a streaming series. But I just think I've seen this done badly before because there are two sequels to Never Ending Story already. Yeah. And the second one is kind of okay. I don't hate it. But... It still lacks the edge and the grit of this original one. And the third one with the kid from Free Willy is an absolute abomination um, that rightly buried the franchise. So I think if they were going to do a, a series, I would be interested because you're right. The world is fascinating and there's so much they could do. I would just hope that if they did do a series, they took their cue from... Uh, the te technical aspects of films like Force Awakens and they did use puppets and they used uh, sort of clever CGI that wasn't necessarily obvious and that they weren't afraid of the darkness and the emotional honesty that is so integral to this film. I guess we're living in times where the people creating these sequel films and these sequel series are the ones who grew up on it. So they are the ones who are loyal uh, to these IPs. So if they came to you, would you jump at the chance to write, <laughs> write on that TV show, to write a a never-ending story remake slash sequel slash Disney Plus series? I mean, I would be absolutely terrified. Uh, as a fan, I'd be like, God, no, why would I touch that? That's an absolute poison chalice. But if I felt that I had a great team around me, then I would be totally up for that. That'd be amazing. Yeah. Keep that never ending story going. What's the connection between 
the never-ending story and the shadow glass. I think that uh, this is just this is just generally one of those films that is sort of living rent-free in my soul. And so <laughs> the fact that I uh, have written a book about 1980, a 1980s fantasy film means that in a lots of different ways, I've channeled, homaged, ripped off the never-ending story. I think it just exists within the fabric of the shadow glass. I think I kind of wanted to try to do something that captured the same quest feeling of the of the never-ending story while also tapping into an emotional core because that's the thing that I really react to with this film is the emotion of it and the way that it actually says something really quite profound without being sort of over the top and without being snooty and snobby about it um so yeah there are there are definitely clear obvious moments in the shadow glass that are heavily inspired by a never-ending story but also i hope that kind of the spirit i've tried to kind of keep the spirit of that story alive as well that was the never-ending story directed by wolfgang Peterson and that with a little help from Steven Spielberg again oh he gets everywhere that man he's got his fingers yeah, in everyone's he, um, pies he helped him edit the film down this this will interest you because Spielberg met Wolfgang Peterson uh, around the time he was prepping Schindler's List and obviously Peterson is German and so he gave Spielberg some help in finding locations for him to shoot the film oh. and then when they were looking to do the American release of Never Ending Story he called on Spielberg to help him sort of fix the edit of the film. Oh. So the, the US and the German versions are actually completely different. Have you seen both? Actually, I, they're not completely different. <laughs> there's, it, there's, se- there's, seven minutes, there's seven minutes less footage in the American version because Spielberg trimmed around certain yeah. things that just picked up the pace and, and made it more palatable to an American audience. The German version is very definitive. It is the ending story. the story ending why would you have a film that never ends no it is the ending story that is final (laughs) period period that is also the end of our series celebrating joshua's love of 80s sci-fi and fantasy in celebration or as the french say celebration of your new book (laughs) the shadow glass (laughs) have you enjoyed i hope you've had fun i've had fun have you, yeah, I was going to ask, have you enjoyed taking the trip down your memory lane? I've loved it. Well, how have you found it? I love it. I've seen films, I think I think it's about half and half. Half of them I've seen before, half of them I've never seen before. Hmm. And I love Brilliant. watching things for the first time. What's been your favourite film that we've watched this season? Oh, Roger Rabbit. Oh, uh, of course. Stupid question. Absolutely love it. Yours is going to be Labyrinth, right? I don't know. A never-ending story. I think it might still my heart from labyrinth a little bit wow labyrinth is, is your favorite film i know but i think story. this one yeah it's special no there's nothing like it i would have to say i prefer the never-ending story because i like the meta element yeah. to it we will be back soon with a series on 21st century queer cinema so be sure to subscribe on apple Podcasts, spotify acast wherever you get your podcasts from so you don't miss that series and we're on twitter at torn stubs pod 
Come let us know what you thought of our 80s series. Have you got a favourite? Would you ride on Falcor's back if you had the chance? Just come let us know. We are off to dig a dead horse out of the mud. Until next time, <laughs> I remain Robert Gershenson. I'm Josh Winning. Moonchild! Ha, ha, ha.